everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Great American Senior Show. I'm your gray-haired host, Sam Yates, and I'm back in Stewart, Florida today. Portia B. Scott, she is here with us, as she promised that she would be. Elder law is her specialty, and that's certainly what we are talking about today. And I say that's your specialty because you also do some other things that I want to get into, uh, most notably adoptions. But before we get into uh, adoptions. Let's talk a, a little bit about uh, something that I only have heard recently, uh, and that is elder law mediation. We have other topics, but what is elder law mediation? Well, uh, hello, Sam, and thanks for having me again. I see that you got a haircut since the last time we met. Absolutely. It looks great. Thank you. Uh, okay, so elder law mediation. Uh, well, first off, mediation in general is a process by which people resolve their distance differences they you can have it before you file a lawsuit you can have it you know me and my neighbor just can't seem to figure out how we're going to work this fence issue we have in the backyard or it can be a multi-gazillion dollar lawsuit between a railroad and a union a, a mediation has a place in many many parts of our uh, our, our systems now the beauty about mediation is that the people who are sitting at the table are the people who have an interest in what happens. If you go in front of a judge, a judge basically gets to make uh, balls and strikes calls. That's what they do. They say, you're right, you're wrong. That's the limitation. Mediation opens up an entire world of possibilities, especially when you have people that are otherwise friendly towards one another and they've had a dispute pop up, you can save their relationship. And as you might imagine, with the elderly, this usually involves family members. It becomes vitally important that everybody be on the same page in taking care of whatever the issue is that has come up with the elderly loved one. It's a wonderful process. It comes, uh, you can't, there's some certain things you cannot mediate. You cannot mediate whether someone has a capacity to make decisions or not. That is something that is very, very fact-based. But once you have a determination that, you know, grandma really doesn't understand the dangers of running the pool pump 24 hours a day and setting the house on fire, then you are able to, as a group come together with a mediator who is a neutral, non-interested party. They're not an advocate. They're totally trained exclusively in helping people get to their own solutions. Now they can come up with ideas about how to get to the goals, but the goals are determined by the parties themselves and there is no authority telling them they have to agree to one thing or another. So elder law uh, mediation is actually something that's relatively new as far as the training goes. We have lots and lots of wonderful uh, certified by the United, by the Florida Supreme court mediators in our area. And if they have had the elder law mediation training, it's not yet its own classification, but it is a training that's offered they come in with an insight and a battery of possible solutions, which the parties themselves may be too immersed in the moment to be able to recognize independently. So I'm a big fan, big fan of mediation, big fan of the idea of elder law mediation. Often the people who handle the mediation 
and the elder law training have been family law mediators accustomed to dealing with custody of children and child support and divorcing families, not completely unsimilar to fighting over who's going to get to take care of dad. As we're talking about mediation, I can, I can imagine one of the areas that might come up for mediation would be proxy versus healthcare surrogate. Is that something that's confusing and could be a point of mediation? Well, certainly it's it's an explanation, mm-hmm. and that's something that a lot of people don't understand in Florida. We have very specific differences between appointing someone as your health care surrogate versus someone as your health care proxy. You really shouldn't have both. Uh, so a health care surrogate is someone that you appoint before you need them to make non-emergency health care decisions for you in the event that you're unable to make them for yourself. The same holds true for a health care proxy. Again, you're unable to make non-emergency health care decisions for yourself. So you're unable because you're mentally incapacitated, you're in a coma, you're on the operating table, and you're under a twilight uh, sleep procedure. Uh, and you can't make the decision on your own, and it's not an emergency. If it's an emergency, you don't need anybody. Medical people don't need anybody's permission. They deal with the emergencies. That's what EMTs. They don't. They don't go to a car wreck scene and say, "Hey, this person's got internal bleeding. Who can give me permission to stabilize their condition?" Don't need it. That's what they're for. It's the other uh, type of medical care that might be required. For instance. My father's father, when he was 97 and a half, I think, uh, was diagnosed with an aggressive uh, skin cancer. And they had to ask my father, who was his health care proxy, which is different from the healthcare care surrogate, um, whether they should have the surgery or not. And the question came down to, well, if you're going to put him out for it, I don't see any reason to do that. If you're not going to take him out, if it's something that can be done with a local, then go ahead. So they they took it off with a local. That was fine. But that's the kind of non-emergency health care decision that needed to be made. And my grandfather at the time, of course, was not able to make his own decisions. So the difference between a proxy and a surrogate. A surrogate is charged with making decisions for you according to what uh, the person believes your wishes would be. You know, I will never want, for instance, chemotherapy. Don't ever let me have chemotherapy. Whereas a proxy is charged with making the decision as what's in the best interest of the patient. So one is you're suspending your own judgment in favor of the person, what you think they would have wanted if they were able to make the decision. That's the surrogate. And the other is you're making the decision regardless of what they want in what's their best interest. So, for instance, if you have someone who has never been a a fully capacitated adult and they're making, they, they want candy for dinner, you know, that's just what they want, under those circumstances when they may not want to get a tooth extracted, Mm -hmm. well, it's in their best interest. So they would have a proxy uh, or they would have the functional equivalent to a proxy. 
Very few people want a proxy. Most people want a healthcare surrogate who would make where you're empowering someone to make decisions like you would have. Is that where like a pre-need declaration comes into effect also? That is one of the pre-need mm-hmm. declarations. That is, uh, they can be effective immediately. So they're just barely pre-need, like before I signed this, mm-hmm. uh, that much pre-need. Another pre-need declaration that we have is a pre-need determination of who should be my guardian if I have to have a guardian. And of course, there, there's the uh, power of attorney, which must take effect immediately so it's it's effective immediately, but what you do is you keep it in the bottom right-hand dr- desk drawer, and when you need it, you tell the person that's where it is, and they can go use it. Because I have uh, seen indirectly where the power of attorney is something someone thinks that that's all they need when it comes to some of the financial matters for a person, especially after they have passed. And what? how does that all equate out? Sure. Thanks. Uh, the power of attorney uh, duplicates in another person whatever financial authority you have, as limited or as narrow as you want. You can do a power of attorney that says, absolutely anything I own in my own name or jointly with another person, I'm giving you full authority to do it. Or you can have it as strict as possible as I authorize you to write one check on my one checking account for my power bill while I'm in China. You can make it as grand or as limited as you want. So the problem with the duplication is, it's not really a problem, it's just a fact of the duplication, is that when I'm dead, I can't do anything. So the fact that I duplicated my authority to you means you can't do anything either. So the the long and short of that is a power of attorney dies with the person who gave it to, who signed it. So powers of attorney are only good during the lifetime, and unless they're revoked, of course, but they're only good during the lifetime of the person who granted it. A lot of people try to use powers of attorney after someone has passed and actually do from time to time, which opens up a boatload of liability if a mistake was made. And that's how that was explained to me recently uh, in a case where someone went to a bank and the bank did not uh, really pay attention and used that power of attorney was used for some financial transactions. And uh, then it was later said, well, you shouldn't have done that. And, And it created problems for everyone involved. Sure. Even with the best of intentions. What about living wills? How does how do they fit in that equation, sure. or do they? Living wills. This is this is the most problematic conversation I ever have with a client. Is when we contemplate all kinds of absolutely horrible scenarios in which they may find themselves. In fact, we always uh, meet with people and explain what the living will is all about and what the decisions are you're making. And then they make the decisions and then they come back and they execute the documents. And we start with the execution of that document so that by the time we get to their actual will, they get to say something along the lines of, Oh, thank goodness. Now I can just die. I don't have to go through those concepts of suffering. So a living will makes a determination again, before you're in a desperate circumstance in your life, While you're cool-headed, you're making your decision about what kind of treatments you would want under a variety of horrible scenarios. For instance, you've got a terminal disease, you're in a a persistent vegetative state, you don't 
recognize people. You can't communicate uh, effectively. You can't do any of the things uh, that you're wanting to do. You're in hospice care, not hospice, but you're in end of life care. And then on top of all of that, you have a heart attack. Do you want to be resuscitated when they're just going to bring you back to your state of dying? Now, nobody wants to think about those things. And yet, if you don't specifically say, do not resuscitate me, do not hook me up to a ventilator, do not put me on dialysis if it's not going to fix what's going on, then the healthcare providers are required to. Toss one out that I actually uh, had the occasion to come into um, contact with a person, passed away, and as part of their last wishes, they wanted their dog put down. And it is something that a lot of people don't think about. But when it came time to find the dog, the dog had disappeared. So recommendations there on pets. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Those of you who can't see me, I am glaring at Mr. Yates. No, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of pets. I think pets add so much to our lives and make our life so enriched even the terrible ones that chew up your remote controls there i i find it heartbreaking that people are of such a mindset that they believe that i don't know if they believe that the animal would be better off because no one will ever love them as much as the owner does or what yeah that was a tough question and and i bring that up because it is something that uh, here uh in our area we have no-kill shelters. And it's a little bit off the topic, but uh, if you have something that you really don't like your dog or your cat or whatever, take them to a no-kill shelter. But uh, that uh, that scenario actually happened, and uh, it created quite a bit of heartache for the remaining members of the family. I love the idea that someone grabbed the dog and yes. Yes. rescued, rescued. We, and we cannot say who it was because I don't know who that was, right, but right. the dog lived happily ever after. And a farm in upstate New York. And a farm in upstate New York, yes. <laughs> One of the things that also is near and dear to you, adoptions. Yeah, yeah. Adoptions uh, never come about because everything's rosy, right? Uh, adoptions are the best possible end to a very sad story. Uh, someone is eligible to be adopted, children are eligible to be adopted, if their parents are dead, if their parents have proven themselves incapable of providing the food, clothing, shelter, love, safety that a child deserves. Adoptions come about because of tragedy. It's never because everything was just great and the child is up for adoption. However, the, the positive side of that is that Someone who really wants a child, especially that particular child, has an opportunity to enrich their own lives and beyond anything else, help that child with the recovery that comes about and is available to them coming out of this tragedy. And I'm telling you, I have done oodles of adoptions. That's a technical legal number by the way and it's the best day yeah. everybody leaves the courthouse happy the the child is happy if, if they're present which they almost always are the parents or parents are happy the judge is happy the clerk of court is happy the bailiff is smiling 
everybody leaves the courtroom happy that day because what we do is we create a, this is, I stole this from Judge Steve Levin, is that we create a legal relationship where an emotional and spiritual one already existed. That's a great way of describing that. I'm going to use that myself. So, Judge, if you uh, listen to this program and you hear it, it's not plagiarism at all. It's just creative use of someone else's words in a different scenario. It's an homage. An homage. There you go. Exactly right. Because I'm a lawyer, you see. That's right. That's exactly right. And that leads into an area also that I recently uh, experienced. And, And folks are like, wow, you run into a lot of things. I do. I travel all over the country, all over the state, uh, looking into things, all things uh, for senior citizens. And this one was of a special needs child who was growing into adulthood and the parents were both aging. Brings us to the topic of a special needs trust. Sure, sure. Uh, so special needs trust is a very spe- specialized, hence the name, a very specialized form of a trust. And as we said, there's um, a recap, a trust is an instrument that creates legal obligations and duties on the trustee and takes ownership of something, in, in this case we'll use cash, takes ownership of cash and divides it in half. Half of it is the legal owner, that is the trustee. They're the person who has the authority to do what needs to be done. And everyone will say, yes, you're the owner. You can write that check. You can uh, purchase that goods. And the other is the what's called equitable, which is concept of fairness, uh, it, ownership interest, which goes to the beneficiary. So... I may own a bunch of, uh, I might have $100,000 in an account that uh, of which I am the legal owner, I'm the trustee, but 100% of that money is has got to be used for my disabled child. That child is the beneficiary. Now, special needs trust has uh, many qualifications, many requirements, the, uh, the federal government as well as the state government has a voice in what we have to include. It's very, very specific, and one error can cost you the entire document being found to be invalid. But the idea behind it is that if someone is on benefits, say, for instance, they are getting Medicaid that covers surgeries that they must have from uh, uh, often, then if I have $100,000 and I want to make my child's life better, but I don't want it all to be spent for these surgeries and leave me with nothing for, to betterment of the child, I can create what's called a special needs trust. And in that trust, I put the $100,000. It's an irrevocable trust, which means I can't change my mind later. And it's got to go for the use of my beneficiary. It's got, again, to make their life better. It can be to purchase something that benefits that the government provides would not cover. Let's say, for instance, uh, my child's confined to a wheelchair, and the wheelchair they have doesn't have uh, the proper brakes that I need. I can get a better wheelchair for my child. I can buy a van that will have one of those lifts that can put the wheelchair in and out to help facilitate my child's going to the doctors. There are a lot of things that can be used for a special needs trust that would enhance the child's life and do not take anything away from the taxpayers, for instance, which I know is always a concern. 
Portia, I want to thank you very much for being on our program. And I ask in the first episode, if you would come back, I'm also going to ask now because in the field of elder law, laws change, people's needs change, situations and circumstances change, and additional questions come up. Would you come back at some point in the future and grace us? Well, I don't know about if I'm going to be gracing you, but Sam, it's always a pleasure to see you. And yes, I'd be happy to. Awesome. Portia, thank you for being here. We look forward to having you back in the future. And until that time, and until our next episode of the Great American Senior Show, I'm your gray-haired host, Sam Yates, and that's how our program ends. Mm-hmm.